Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Chris Donovan, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Roger Strode, to discuss orthopedics in the new millennium, the evolution of orthopedic and spine medicine. Take it away, Roger. Thanks a lot, Chris, for that introduction. Uh, For those of you out here today listening to this podcast, my name is Roger Strode. I'm a partner in the national healthcare practice with Foley and Lardner in Chicago, Illinois. I've been practicing law for the last 30 years after graduating from Marquette University Law School. I started my career as a CPA and a tax lawyer, and then slowly that that career morphed into uh, healthcare transactional role. Um, my clients are primarily hospitals and healthcare systems, uh, private equity firms, uh, companies that sell or recapped by private equity, large physician groups. I do work in ambulatory surgery and imaging, and and I have had the pleasure of working closely with our guest on our podcast today that uh, I'm going to spend a little time introducing you to. Today's podcast, we're focusing on orthopedics in the new millennium and really the evolution of the business of orthopedic and spine medicine. And we're joined today by an excellent guy and an excellent doctor, uh, my friend, Todd Albert. Uh, Dr. Albert is Surgeon-in-Chief, Chief Medical Officer and Corrine Wilson Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery. Uh, just real quickly, the Hospital for Special Surgery last year for the ninth year in a row was named the number one orthopedic hospital in the United States under U.S. News and World Report, number three in rheumatology, the best hospital for pediatric orthopedics in New York City, and number 21 in the United States. This hospital, which is not a large hospital, uh, had last year 450,000 outpatient visits, almost 33,000 surgeries, and people came from 84 countries around the world to have their care uh, at the Hospital for Special Surgery. They're the team doctors for more than 20 college and professional sports teams. It's truly a remarkable place. Back to Dr. Albert. Uh, He's the chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and a professor of orthopedic surgery at Wild Cornell Medical College. Dr. Albert specializes in the field of orthopedic spine surgery, and he focuses on disorders of the cervical spine. He's got an interest in minimally invasive surgical techniques and image-guided technologies in the management of spinal disorders. First of all, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Albert. It's really a pleasure to have you part of this podcast series. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Let's start out. Uh, what I, what I want to talk about a little bit today, again, we want to talk about the evolution of the business of orthopedic and spine medicine, both the physician side uh, as well as the facility side, whether it be physician-owned hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers, and places like the hospital for special surgery. Todd, maybe you can start out by giving the audience your perspective on how orthopedic and spine medicine and the business of orthopedics and spine medicine has grown during the course of your career. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me again. You know, it's been an incredible evolution to watch. I started practice, practicing, graduating from my fellowship in 1993. And, you know, the majority of people in those days were in 
a small group or solo practice, or maybe they worked in an academic department, but no one owned anything. No doctors owned anything. And I joined a group of six people and the evolution over time, what I, what I saw, the first step was amalgamation of uh, groups to become bigger. And the goal of the transformation was it was the HMO era and when people didn't get fee for service anymore. And there was a perception by physicians that their income was dropping. And it was partially reality, partially perception, but it was a defensive move to try and get bigger first for negotiating purposes with insurance companies, et cetera. But then as groups grew, at least our personal experience was we wanted to leverage the ability of our growth to own things that were appropriately used to treat patients. And what I mean by that is we ordered orthotics, braces, and things like that all the time. So it was just to have control of the braces we ordered, the quality of what we ordered, the physical therapy that we ordered, really for control. But the secondary effect, especially in musculoskeletal medicine or orthopedics, was that it became an ancillary stream of revenue. So by owning the things that you would prescribe in the necessary uh, kind of process of care, you started to see accumulation uh, of your business assets. And so you'd go from, the natural history was to go from orthotics to PT to then surgery centers. And ultimately, at least we in Philadelphia, went to hospitals. And, and, and much of it was around control of quality, but it became also an ancillary revenue stream. So it served two purposes. Now, this hospital for special surgery was a different purpose. It started 153 years ago as a single specialty hospital when um, James Knight, who was the founder, was trying to treat poor kids with polio in New York City out of his house. He wasn't even a surgeon. And then the second surgeon in chief, Virgil Gibney, was a surgeon. It was almost heresy that he performed surgery on people. But from there, it's grown to what you described. It's the largest musculoskeletal academic medical center that's solely focused on musculoskeletal health. And there's a huge advantage, as I just alluded to, in at a smaller group setting, but there's a huge advantage to being singularly focused with no distraction of transplant medicine, cardiac medicine, GI medicine, where we can deliver care to patients that is is really hard to compare to in a general hospital. And I think that's a huge advantage when we talk about delivering the best care, but it's also a huge economic advantage to be able to singularly focus on musculoskeletal care. Our not-for-profit hospital is very, very successful as a business model because we focus and have every single thing dialed into what delivers the best care for the patient. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> that focus, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but but a number of years ago, a, a Harvard professor, a woman by the name of Regina, Regina Herzlinger, wrote a book. I believe it was called Focused Factories. And I think the premise of her book was when it comes to healthcare, 
that the focus factory is really the way to go. And it sounds like, and without skipping too far ahead, because I do want to dive into the hospital, the business of the hospital for special surgery a little later. It seems to me that the hospital for special surgery, it's a little bit like Sloan Kettering. It's a little bit like the MD Anderson, uh, but yet in spine, in spine and orthopedic and musculoskeletal medicine, that that focus is really what's made you guys as successful as you are. You're 100% correct. And that is my, you know, I came from a general hospital setting where we tried to create, you know, a focus factory by owning a hospital, which we can talk about. But it is, I think it is 100% correct. And just to take Regina Herzlinger's uh, thesis a, a step further, what she said is that hospitals and doctors should become much more like McDonald's or FedEx where you do the same thing over and over and over again to perfection. And I think that's, to your point, the way to deliver the most efficient, cost-effective care. Yeah. And um, to, to I want to play off a little bit that, that idea as physicians have grown. Um, one of the things that I'd like to spend a little time talking about is the growth of the large orthopedic group and the interest of both hospitals and now specifically private equity in the acquisition of orthopedic medicine. And what I want to talk about a little bit and explore with you is I realize, and as a disclaimer, I realize you're in private practice and and you guys at the Hospital for Special Surgery have sort of a very unique model, if I, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, where many of you are just in single physician, you have your own single practice, which anymore today, that you would you would find that almost impossible to do in most markets to have just, you know, Todd Albert PC or Todd Albert PA. And I realize the hospital does employ some physicians, but you guys are all in some very small practices, which you just don't see anymore. Um, so I realize you're not really part of a, a private equity and you've not been approached necessarily by private equity. But I'd like to talk a little bit about it because over the last few years, I spent a lot of time in private equity and I've spent a lot of time both on the buy and the sell side. And we've seen physician practices really starting with a lot of the hospital-based practices, be they anesthesia, radiology, that were have been uh, you know, amalgamated and conglomerated and, and consolidated by, by private equity players. We then saw it morph into specialties such as what we would consider retail medicine specialties like uh, dermatology and ophthalmology and optometry for several reasons, but you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of leverage in those practices because of the ability to leverage lab and leverage medical spas and face rejuvenation, skin rejuvenation, uh, LASIK surgery, eyeglasses, et cetera, ambulatory surgery. So those became very, very, those have become very popular with private equity players. And I know that private equity has begun to turn its sights on orthopedics. And, and to me, it seems a bit of a natural from their perspective because of, as you said before, it, it's always struck me that orthopedics has the, if you consider leverage points and you consider all of the ancillaries, whether it's PT and it's imaging and it's DME and orthotics, it's ambulatory surgery. In some cases, it's physician-owned hospitals. You have tremendous lines of business that spin off individual 
income streams. And, you know, they like to say that, uh, you know, people get wealthy when they make money while they're asleep. Well, in orthopedics, you don't. You stole that from me. That's my line. <laughs> I knew I heard it from somebody very I can't use it now. I heard but it from right, you somebody it. very, give, very smart. And I'm giving and, it to you. Uh, but, but, you know, the orthopedic seems to be one of the few one of the few practices left where a physician doesn't have to have his hands on a patient at any particular time necessarily to generate revenue for his business. Can you talk a little bit about the trend of the uh, consolidation of big practices around the country, as well as where you see private equity going from your perspective? Because I'm sure you've had plenty of conversations with physicians around the country, as well as you know internally, and and maybe some of the various pros and cons you see for a, from a physician perspective. You can see a lot of the pros from private equity, but I'd like to get your perspective on what you see as the pros and cons for physician investment in these type of things. Sure, sure. I think that was a, actually a great lead up because the truth is you described Hospital for Special Surgery fairly accurately. Um, I We have grown from when I came by a lot of physicians, but almost except for probably four physicians, um, they're singular physicians with what looks like under a practice management and the practice management is HSS. So you can't tell people are in, are singular because everybody has the HSS tag. That's a whole different model, which works very nicely. And there's some consolidation here, but let's put that aside for a minute where I started at the Rothman Institute, we grew from, as I alluded to before, six physicians or seven physicians up to over a hundred. And we were in the first group, one of the first, the first musculoskeletal group to join, if you remember, and this is an old term, the physician practice management companies, they were rolling up. The first trend was rolling up physician groups with the idea of you'd give a third of your income off the top. Uh, it was a little bit of a pyramid. You'd give the third of your income for the rest of your life, and they would offer uh, income growth and more efficiencies and ancillaries and all those things. And that trend was very, very rampant in the mid nineties to late nineties. Uh, industry collapsed a bit, but what what's happening now is, is slightly reminiscent of that in terms of groups getting bigger and bigger, as you said, and the, the original, in my opinion, the original driver was to get leverage but not as much leverage for ancillaries, leverage to negotiate, to negotiate against hospital systems and to negotiate against insurers. In Philadelphia, was a very, somewhat of a unique market, uh, like some other unique markets in the United States, where there were two large insurers. There was a, a Keystone, which was the Blue Cross product, which was huge. And so uh, we wanted to become big to have negotiating power but we also became big so that we could own those ancillaries. And in my opinion, to answer your question, to what I think about the private equity, we always were thinking about, could we get bought at a multiple? But I'm not sure if I'm the private equity people, if it's the best play, because many of these large groups and, and people became large and then owned all the ancillaries and built it up. So they would be attractive. But as far as I understand, and Roger, you can explain better to, than I can, for private equity, you want to buy something, 
increase the value and then sell it. And the average lifespan is a three to four year lifespan before the next transaction. Well, if it's a really successful group, if it's a really successful group, they've already, they're not maximized on their ancillaries, but they're doing pretty well on the ancillaries. And you have to say, well, what is the infusion of private equity going to do to build them up to, to get to the next level? There is the ancillaries, but if I was a private equity group, I'd want to buy doctors who haven't exploited all those ancillaries yet and then build up the ancillaries and then sell them to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, Ted, I think that is one of the questions that private equity is probably facing here. I have a little bit of experience in this and you've got, for example, the large, the super groups like the Rothman or the Ortho Indy, the Ortho Carolinas, these very, very large groups. And you're right, they are maxed out probably already on the the ancillaries that they've exploited. I mean, they've got everything they can possibly have and, and they've even done then some, right? They've expanded, they've made them better. And then the only way to grow in a situation like this is something that some of these groups have already done. They go around and they will then bolt on smaller practices onto them. And from a private equity standpoint, I think that's the other way to grow, right? Because the one of the ways they do it is they will take a platform practice and will pay a, a fairly sizable multiple. And, and it's no secret, we've seen the multiples in the 11, 12 times trailing 12 months earning range, if not more. And then when they bolt on the smaller practices and they go out and acquire those smaller practices, those tend to be acquired at a, at a substantially lower multiple, usually maybe half. So the idea is, is that you then, when you sell the whole thing or you, you do the next trade, whether it be three years out or seven years out, whatever it might be, you've got a built-in arbitrage between what you paid for those smaller practices and what you ultimately trade at, hopefully higher than the multiple that you originally bought at. Um, but I think it strikes me also, and, and, and I'd, like your, I'd like your thoughts here, it strikes me also that orthopedics is going to be a little bit of a tougher nut to crack. And it's been a tough nut, obviously, for hospitals to crack, because you, you can imagine uh, large hospital systems would love nothing more than to employ the orthopedic surgeons that fill up their, their surgical suites. It, it, it's because of these ancillaries, and it's because of the entrepreneurial nature of orthopedic surgeons, they don't really seem to need the help growing in many cases. They don't need that outside capital. So what is it that would attract them? It would probably have to be something like um, just the equity downstroke, the ability to monetize part of their practice, and then hopefully the equity that they take in return in addition to the cash will grow, I suppose. One thing I, I guess I'd, I'd like to know and get your thoughts on is, do you see these any of these supergroups, do you ever foresee a national platform for orthopedic surgery where you could have a very large network of orthopedic surgeons all over the country that are all under the same maybe MSO model or under the same you know, flying the flag, whether it be an HSS flag or whether it be a whatever flag. Do you foresee that happening? I would love to see it because it's been one of my little dreams or thought processes as you were talking about what, you know, private equity, what would you, the really good play is if you could create that. I always make the joke is like what I would like to see is a musculoskeletal insurance company and people laugh at me. But if you think about the cost, if you look at large employers, 
the second largest cost, second or first largest cost under their pay line is musculoskeletal injuries. And if you could get a consolidation, a national consolidation or huge, huge super group to super group consolidation and control the intake and the lives of all those patients, imagine you could go to really large employers and say, what did you spend last year on your musculoskeletal health? They have those numbers, Comcast, Google, everybody has, American Express has those numbers. What'd you spend? What if our venture could decrease your cost by 25%? Would you be willing to share that savings with us? And now you have a new type of product that you're delivering. And so I think if there's going to be a play in that way, that would be the play for some smart organization to perform. We've talked about it in a different way at HSS, and it's a little embryonic in its thought process, but it's a thought process of trying to create almost a musculoskeletal ecosystem. In, in other words, trying to help people with their musculoskeletal problems, both before, if you think about the life cycle of musculoskeletal injury, there's prevention, just like there's cardiovascular prevention, but there's prevention in terms of getting your muscles strong, all the things that you do from childhood to old age to help your balance, help your muscle strength, prevention of fractures, falls, injuries, all that. Through those who have sprains and all those other things, helping them either with an app through access to care, to those few that need surgery taking care of them, to the rehabilitation. And if you think about that life cycle of care, we have some interest and a lot of knowledge in how to do that at our institution. And we've been had some uh, discussions and actually like a, almost a SWAT team put together of how to create that, both the door to get in or to have access to people, to provide that uh, both education and easy to get at uh, prevention tools to access to care, you know, on a global basis. We're not there yet. It's just a early, hot off the press, patent pending kind of thing. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, in that regard, and and now jumping to HSS, because I, uh, again, I, I have found it to be such a fascinating place. And, you know, having had the the pleasure and the honor of getting to work with you and the physicians and the leadership at HSS on, on some of your ventures. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about HSS's mission and some of the really interesting things that you're doing with respect to branching out and taking that HSS brand and the, that HSS intellectual property to different places in the world. And you're doing some really fascinating stuff. And I, I think, you know, if you talk about the business of orthopedic and spine medicine, given the fact that you guys are really on the bleeding edge of all of this, no pun intended, um, or pun intended, maybe you can talk a little bit about the work you guys are doing in Korea, I believe in different parts of the United States. I think people would really find that fascinating. Sure. I like to call it the bloodless edge, not the bleeding edge, <laughs> the bloodless edge. Uh, so, so we have a couple different ways. You know, we have some of the best knowledge having been created and experiential knowledge with a long history of, like I said, a singular focus and really, really talented, uh, terrific surgeons and non-operative specialists. 
And what we've done in terms of there's one of our principal missions is education. And so we start with some educational outreach across the world um, with partners. And we've started such connections in a number of places. But two examples you mentioned, one was Korea, where we have um, relationships, where we help uh, certain hospitals and uh, systems to improve their care, both through education, we do analysis and help them with their operating rooms and how they function and share our protocols. We've done so in uh, Colombia. We have a agreement we just executed in Cartagena, Colombia, uh, with a new hospital there uh, that is connected to a wonderful hospital uh, in Bogota, where we're helping them both to improve their processes and get off the ground in terms of improving their care. We've also uh, executed an agreement with Aspen Valley Hospital in Aspen, Colorado, uh, where we have a similar agreement to help them with their processes, all related to musculoskeletal health. And one of the things we've done so that there's a partnership between our excellent physicians and the enterprise, the HSS enterprise that you helped us with, Roger, was something we called HS Squared where there are physician investors, you know, you noted that we were somewhat individuals in, in physicians, uh, a small number employed, 30% employed, but the rest uh, individual practices under a physician practice management model that HSS is the physician practice manager, but that people invested individually and about 85% uh, of our physicians invested and it's essentially, for lack of a better description, a talent management agency. So this the group, HS Squared, is in charge of, when we do these outside ventures, quality, the people that we involve, the physicians we involve, and oversight of the protocols and the improvement in care that's given. And also, when we create innovation, we help with the innovation as well. So it's that's a different kind of ancillary that's compliant in a partnership between the physicians and the hospital. At least you have to tell me as my lawyer that we're compliant. <laughs> this is now going to go out to the world. Yeah, this is attorney-client privilege. <laughs> no, it is, it, it, is a, it is really a unique model that we all did build between the physicians and counsel on both sides, as well as the, uh, the leadership at HSS to harness all of that physician talent. And it, it's unique in that you do have all of these independent physicians, but you've come under one umbrella. You all own one company and can share in uh, the revenues that HSS generates from the hospitals in Korea and in, and in Cartagena uh, and in Aspen, et cetera, and the other places that you'll branch out into by providing that talent and at, at a fair market value rate. And it allows all the physicians to participate in the distributions through that rather than just simply the doctors who are maybe shipped down to Columbia or, or head out to Seoul to do it, all the physicians get to participate. So it's, it's a pretty fascinating model. Dr. Albert, I'd like to expand a little bit on this idea of HSS's growth strategy and where you see it going. Where does telemedicine and digital health fit into that particular growth plan? Yeah, sure. You know, so telehealth is big all over. Everybody's uh, dabbling in it. In the concept I alluded to, uh, 
uh, in terms of a kind of an enterprise or an ecosystem, we view telehealth as the front door, as the digital front door. So we're thinking of ways to create this front door or an app where I'll give you the example of what I take care of, back pain. We are early in the stages of creating a, you have back pain. You go to HSS app, you get exercises, you might get a preliminary diagnosis. You make sure there's not red flags that you should see a doctor very soon. And, And then you can go follow up and or get a doctor in your area if you need that. So I think it's going to be huge. Uh, across the country and the world for people obtaining medicine. And our strategy will absolutely include a telehealth strategy. Excellent. Yeah, I, we obviously as a law firm, we've seen a, an explosion of clients interested in telemedicine and digital medicine. And um, it'll be very, very interesting because if you kind of look at the growth curve of telehealth, digital medicine right now, a lot of these companies tend to be VC-backed, but we're starting to see more and more of them actually start to cash flow. And as they do that, we will, I think you're going to see a lot of private equity investment in telemedicine. And when that happens, you're going to see, uh, and that's really, I think, a function of heavy adoption by leading institutions like yours, like Mayo uh, and some of the others. And, and then I think it's going to be a function of patients ultimately getting comfortable with it because I think I have seen some data out there that at least right now, patients tend to be a little slow to adopt it. Yeah. And while patients love digital apps and we all love our phones and our computers, I think learning how to actually use it and use it to better your own health is something that uh, probably it's organizations like yours that are going to help people understand how to do that and really how to use it. Yes, use it, trust it. And one of the other things we're doing besides a digital front door is trying to use wearable technology so people can both track their progress and their outcome. And we can use it for research to measure if we're doing the correct thing for patients or when patients may need an intervention. Um, Just real quick to wrap it up, what are you, Todd, in the next, say, three to five years, where do you see HSS and where do you see the business of orthopedic medicine? Um, So I look at that a little bit as two questions. I think the HSS I see perhaps in the next three to five years Um, realizing that dream I just spoke about of becoming um, the, my raw term, my Waterbury, Connecticut term for it is a musculoskeletal insurance company, but we're of course not going to become that, but being able to uh, effectuate musculoskeletal care for a huge population through technology partnerships and perhaps, perhaps a global network or at least a national network and maybe a global network. That's three to five, probably to 10 years. I think orthopedic medicine in general, you are going to see a way, as you noted, private equity is uh, set their sights on in some trust, but I think you're going to see more consumption of large orthopedic groups or by private equity. But I also think it remains to be seen. I'm not a pessimistic person, but I think it remains to be seen whether when they look at that, when the private equity groups look at it and say, did we make a great purchase? Much like the FICARES and all those did 20 years ago, 
and look back and go, well, we did it, but it wasn't super successful. I wonder, as the private equity groups look at orthopedics, if in the end, 10 and 20 years hence, they're going to say that experiment worked. If they don't do what I was describing, I think would be the play. Well, and I think too, to kind of wrap it up, I think too, when it comes to investment in orthopedic groups like that, you may see some, the great thing about private equity and and the men and women that work in private equity is they're very smart people and they've been able to, they come up and they're very quick learners and they're very creative. And I think you may see some different investment models that might work in private equity. I don't disagree with you. Obviously, the, the lower hanging fruit are the smaller groups that, that haven't exploited all of the ancillaries and don't necessarily have the capital to grow the way a Rothman or an Ortho Carolina might be able to grow or an Illinois Bone and Joint might be able to grow. So you may see some more creative investment models in private equity. Right. I think we're coming to the end of our time. Again, I want to thank Dr. Albert. This was really terrific, Todd. Very interesting stuff. Um, I think one of the reasons that that I have stayed in healthcare, you know, my entire career and will finish out my career in healthcare is it never stops changing. It's fascinating. The business of healthcare is fascinating. I, I do recall one anecdote that back when I recall sitting at the Palm in Chicago when President Obama was elected, the night he was elected, and we knew that the Affordable Care Act was on the docket and that with the Democrats capturing the House and the Senate and the White House, that we were going to have the Affordable Care Act. And I recall thinking to myself and talking to my wife, my girlfriend at the time, my wife, picking up the phone and saying, my career as a healthcare lawyer is now officially over. I'm going to have to find something else to do because this act is going to ruin my, it's going to ruin medicine and ruin my career. Uh, it's a good thing that I don't prognosticate anything because I couldn't have been more wrong. It has uh, created, as as Rahm Emanuel said, uh, I think at the time, there's nothing like taking advantage of a good crisis. It has created such, I don't want to say chaos, but it's created so much disturbance and never really seems to stop changing. And, it, and it's really fascinating stuff. Can I tell you one quick anecdote that goes along with that? that I remember, I don't remember where I was sitting, but I remember rushing like crazy to get our private orthopedic hospital we just bought certified before that thing came down because I knew it was gonna become illegal. I prognosticated that correctly, but we did get it done, as you know. You did, and, and I recall, because I believe I was the lawyer working on that yeah. <laughs> at the time, you recall correctly. Uh, thanks again, Todd. Thank you, Roger, and thank you to Todd Albert for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Chris Donovan at Foley and Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.